Hey guys, buckle up for the heaviest Mother's Day Sunday sermon you have ever heard. So this Mother's Day, I preached at Calvary Chapel Chattanooga in Tennessee. Phenomenal leadership. Pastor Frank there and the team are incredible. And they tried to get me earlier, but my schedule was completely full. And so it ended up in God's providence that I was there preaching an abortion sermon on Mother's Day. But listen, this is actually important because mothers matter. And you're a mother from the moment of conception. And the greatest threat and assault on motherhood is the culture of death and abortion. And its greatest organizational demon is Planned Parenthood, who also loves mothers, but for very different reasons, because they see dollar signs on her stomach and dollar signs in her womb for the limbs of the children that they sell after they profit off of dismembering. Planned Parenthood wants to get back into Chattanooga. This is why I preach this sermon to rally the troops to stand against this genocidal organization, because Chattanooga is the largest city in the country without an abortion clinic, because a bunch of Christians drove them out of town in 1993 nearly 30 years ago, and they are trying to knock on the door of Chattanooga with their sexual education, which is their sales funnel to sell abortions to their prospects who are young women. So buckle up, share this message with your mother uh, and with friends of yours, and prepare to get equipped to understand the sacrament, the religion, and the liturgy of the religion of the abortion industry, secular progressivism, and their high priests, scientists, and abortion doctors. Buckle up. Here we go. It's likely that uh, we have maybe uh, many guests this morning that have come to uh, be a part of the baby dedication, or maybe, Mom, the one thing you wanted was, you know, your son or your daughter to come join you for church, and so we're glad that many of you have come invited by a friend, and... Um, but I, but I want to sort of set the stage a little bit. It's going to be important because this isn't going to be a Mother's Day message like any other Mother's Day message. This is going to be quite different. And I want to just prepare you on the front side. Uh, I did about 21. Like, if, So, if Mom, if you came today and you're like, I just want to hear a message about how great I am, um, you're going to have to go back into the archives. I've done that about 21 times. This is my 20, 21 years, so this is going to be different. This is going to be, this is going to be challenging. This is going to be strong. This is going to be, in some ways, some of you are going to be like, "Oh, I cannot believe you did this on Mother's Day." Um, I, I do want to say as well, some of what we're going to address is probably pushing way past PG thirteen. That is, I mean, sincerely, some of the things that we're going to talk about, and you'll understand why. Um, you might right now just quietly look at your, like, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old and go, mm, today's going to be a good day for, you know, ministry with the kids. We're, it, it will get, and, it's, it, it, and there's a reason for it. At some point, some of what we're going to hear is, um, it, it is uh, parental guidance, to say the very least. Um, but I want to try to just quickly say this. Um, there is, I, I think I have mentioned to us publicly, but I know I've talked to the staff. Maybe I haven't mentioned this publicly, but you may have heard some time ago that Planned Parenthood plans to come back, uh, to come to Chattanooga. They want to bring Planned Parenthood to Chattanooga and Planned Parenthood's ideas, which aren't good ideas at all. When I heard the plan, when we heard the Planned Parenthood was coming, they actually posted uh, two job uh, opportunities for Chattanooga area. 
As soon as I heard about their desire to be in Chattanooga, I thought, you know what, this is this kind, these ideas are knocking on the door of this community, um, which by the way, has not seen, and we have not had an abortion in Chattanooga since 1993. That's good. Um, you go, but Planned Parenthood, they, they, they're there like for like women's reproductive health and they'll provide women's services. No, that's, that's just, uh, that's the front door. That isn't the whole agenda at all. And so a couple months ago, I, I thought, you know, I w- would like to try to equip us. Um, I, I love God, I love you, I love truth too much not for us to be equipped to really understand what's coming. And so I thought, let's try to, let's try to get someone that, who really is quite gifted and articulate to unpack this for us. Well, in that time, those job, those job openings had been filled. They've already been filled. They've already, both of those people have been hired. Uh, one is a, well, well, you'll hear more about that in a moment. So we tried to get Seth Gruber. He's gonna come and speak in just a moment. Um, we tried to get Seth to come earlier. We couldn't. Um, we were, time was of the essence. And so it just so happened that the only time we could get him, the next, next date was like sometime in July or August. It's too late. Time's of the essence. And so it happened to be Mother's Day, and we thought, this is going to be a different Mother's Day. <laughs> this is going to be a little different Mother's Day kind of service. And so um, I just want you to be prepared on the front side um, for, for this. And I want you to, you know, try to push past the moment when you hear something that, you know, you're, oh, my God. Just try to, to, to we, this is something that we're really struggling with as a culture. We just won't listen at all. There's no so at some point, um, you go, well, I'm not going to hey, get up and go. It's, it's fine. But I'm, I'm, as your pastor, trying to challenge you to say, you're about ready to be educated. You're about ready to be informed. You're about ready to be inspired. You're about ready to be challenged. We're about ready to be called to action on something, you guys, that is the most important issue of, of our day right now. So... Um, Please forgive him for coming from California first. Um, but could you give, could give Seth Gruber a warm, rowdy Southern welcome for me, please? Hi. Good morning. I assume that laugh meant that I am forgiven from the state I traveled from. So thank you, guys. It's very gracious of you. I do apologize for my state, um, where Governor Mussolini doesn't even require uh, or allow singing in churches. Did you know we banned singing? Um, So the left doesn't like the liturgy of Christians. Did you know that? Because in participating in the liturgy that brings us before the King of Kings who entered human history in a womb that he once knit together, then we might start acting and standing in the culture of death with a big sign that says, Stop! And it's the Christians who should be on the front line doing that, who serve a prenatal God, the greatest former fetus to have ever existed. Now listen, the reason why we're here, the reason why your pastors and leadership decided to give me this time, very risky, on Mother's Day is because we love mothers. And you're a mother when you have a child in your womb. Motherhood does not begin at birth. Motherhood begins at conception. And that's not a religious perspective, you know, so if you're here and you're here because your family asked you to come to see the precious little baby get dedicated and you're not a believer, 
listen, we want you to meet the king of kings, who was a former fetus. But we're not saying this because it's a religious perspective. It's a scientific truth that human life begins at the moment of conception. So you are a mother when you were pregnant with a preborn human being. And so that's why we're talking about the greatest assault on motherhood and the children's they bear today, because it is Mother's Day and we love mothers. But you know who else loves mothers? Planned Parenthood. But for a whole other set of reasons. Because they see dollar signs. And they've assigned dollar signs to the limbs of the children they carry. Because after accepting the money for the killing of that child, they then sell those parts for extra cash. And you're going to learn a little bit about that this morning. So that's why we're talking about this. So if this is uncomfortable, it's because we live in a broken world. And we carry the light of the eternal Christ, the King of Kings, who entered human history. He chose to enter our time and space in a womb. So if that doesn't tell you about what God thinks about life in the womb, I don't know what will. You know, Martin Luther once talked about the courage of pastors and the courage of leaders. And he developed what I call the Martin Luther test. And I think it's a test that Frank and the leadership here have passed with flying colors. But I, wa I want to tell you what the Martin Luther test is. He once said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, in other words, if I'm a brilliant theologian and pastor and I can wax and wane theological and I'm super awesome, if I profess all of those truths, except precisely that point at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on every battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. And for the last 15 months, we've had a lot of flinching from American pulpits and pastors in this country who folded like a cheap suit when tyrants told them to disobey Hebrews, which says, don't forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And Pastor Frank and your leadership here passed that test with flying colors. So amen. And it's about time that shepherds start acting like shepherds when wolves attack the, the flock and stand in the gap on behalf of little sheep and who is more small and vulnerable than preborn human beings. By the way, Pastor Frank asked me to say that, so. No, 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 he didn't, but I wanted to say that anyway, so. You know, we need to learn from our spiritual forefathers. We have what's sort of called chronological snobbery, to quote C.S. Lewis. We stand in 2021, we think we're so much better than other um, cultures and Countries, right? Well, we would never accept the Holocaust or a genocide in our country. Right? We think we're so much better, but we allow the same things. We look down with shame and disgust on those who allowed the Holocaust and allowed slavery. While we allow our own Holocaust, we allow our own lynchings. They're called womb lynchings. And they happen at the tune of a million a year. But men have stood before. In the 1940s was an example of some phenomenal men who stood in Germany against a culture of death. By the way, do you know the names of any of the men who didn't stand and who were preaching Nazi propaganda with the veneer of Christianity within German churches? No, we've forgotten all of their names, and we should, because they're not worth remembering. The names that rise to the surface are names like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Niemöller, Eberhard Bethke. And in 50, 60, 70, 80 years from now, when abortion and the scourge of the, on this country is gone, it will be names like Frank, Jack Hibbs, Rob McCoy, and many, many, many others. 
who were standing against the culture of death. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was this man? Well, he was a man who disobeyed the governing authorities. He disobeyed Romans. He tried to murder the governing authorities. Did you know this? Dietrich tried to murder Hitler. And he founded what was called the Confessing Church. Why did they call themselves the Confessing Church? Well, the insinuation in calling themselves that, it was a little bit prideful, it was a little bit self-congratulatory. They were saying, we're confessing the real Christ because we're standing against the Nazis who were murdering image bearers of God. And you German churches, if you can't even preach against that and stand against the slaughter of God's image bearers, the 13 million total killed in the Holocaust, 6 million of them were Jews. If you can't stand against that and you're apathetic to that, or worse yet, you, you preach Nazi bigotry, with the veneer of Christianity, you might not be confessing the real Christ. I mean, why else call yourself the confessing church? It, it was done in order to create a line of demarcation to say those of us here are confessing real Jesus, what Bonhoeffer called costly grace. And those of you on this side have cheap grace. Cheap grace is essentially grace without Jesus Christ. It's a Christ that you make in your own image. Well, here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friend by the name of Eberhard Bethke had to say. These are her, his words to us today. The reason why they are is because he was articulating what political resistance against the culture of death looked like within the walls of the church. That might be helpful for our time today. Here's what he said. This is like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friends. I mean, these guys were pastors together. Here's what he said. Bonhoeffer introduced us in the Confessing Church in 1935 to the problem of what we today call political resistance. Oh, no, he's going to talk about politics. Yes, because politics is the art of the possible where we're stewards of what God has given us. He says the levels of confession, and by confession he means proclamation, right, to declare. He says the levels of confession and resistance could no longer be kept neatly apart. The escalating persecution of the Jews generated this increasingly intolerable situation, especially for Bonhoeffer. We now realize that mere confession, no matter how courageous, inescapably meant complicity with the murderers. Even though there would always be new acts of refusing to be co-opted, and even though we would preach Christ alone Sunday after Sunday, during the whole time, the Nazi state never considered it necessary to prohibit such preaching. And then he asks this question, why should it? Why should the Nazis prohibit the preaching that we were preaching? Maybe because the preaching wasn't a preaching that called you off the bench and onto the battlefield to defend image bearers of God who were being genocided. Maybe because what you were preaching was what Bonhoeffer called a cheap grace, a Jesus you've made in your own image. That type of preaching doesn't pose any type of ideological, philosophical, or religious opposition to the Nazis. So they're like, awesome, keep preaching that cheap grace. Keep preaching that liturgy, awesome. Keep your liturgy within the walls of the church. So the Nazis had no problem with that preaching. This was what the confessing church was waking up to. Maybe we need to wake up to that too. Here's what he finishes with. He says, we were approaching the borderline between confession and resistance. And if we did not cross this border, our confession was going to be no better than cooperation with the criminals. And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. In short, the only way that the anti-Holocaust, pro-life position of German churches manifested itself was through words. 
Today, this looks like this. Oh, we're a super pro-life church. We preach um, about it once a year, and we make a one-time donation to the Pregnancy Resource Center. But we have three abortion clinics in our city, and you know, we don't stand outside of there because we don't want to be perceived as political hacks. And so we're a super pro-life church. Oh, so your confession, your resistance, rather, to the culture of death only evidences itself through words. And Scripture says faith leads to works. A good tree does not bear bad fruit, neither does a bad tree bear good fruit. Hmm. For too long, the American church has only proven its resistance to the culture of death, which slaughters babies at the tune of a million a year, by saying, I'm pro-life, and the culture of death goes, that's it? Epic. Exactly what we want. Cheap grace Christians. Now, maybe you're saying, Seth, listen, I'm pro-life, but fighting abortion isn't my calling. I love that it's your calling, Seth, but my calling is, is to serve at soup kitchens, and each person's entitled to their own calling. Listen, I'm not here to say other issues don't matter, that other social issues or justice issues don't matter. They all matter. But not all issues carry the same moral weight. Slavery was not the only issue of its day in 1850s America, was it? The Holocaust was not the only issue of its day in 1940s Germany, was it? There were still poor people. There were women who were being beat up by their husbands. There were children who were being abused. There were lots of other issues going on. But don't we all look back at that time and say, well, th that was the dominant issue of its day. Abortion is the dominant issue of our day, you guys, because abortion is not just one issue among many. The right to life is not just one right among many. It is the prerequisite right, without which no other rights make any sense or have any meaning. And this is why our founder said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That means obvious. Duh. That we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are the right to life. Oh, look, they put life first. Ronald Reagan recognized this in his book, Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. Yes, because abortion represented what we really believed. It was a litmus test of this republic, because it strikes at the very heart of who we are as a people and a republic. And Reagan was pro-choice. He actually has unborn blood on his hands because of his policies in California, and he had a conversion. Here's what he said in his book. Abraham Lincoln recognized that we cannot survive as a free land as long as some men could decide that others are not fit to be free and should therefore be slaves. Likewise, we cannot survive as a free country today when some men can decide that others are not fit to live and should be abandoned to abortion and infanticide. So there is no cause more important than affirming the transcendent right to life of all human beings, the right without which no other rights have any meaning. In other words, if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. The right to liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness don't mean much. In fact, they mean nothing at all if you could be murdered. Confession, words, and resistance, putting your beliefs into action. So to move from mere confession to resistance, we must do three things. We must see the reality of what is happening to God's preborn image bearers. Secondly, we must judge what the reality of abortion and the abortion industry means in the light of God's truth, in the light of our faith. And lastly, once we see what's happening, and you know why it's important, you have a duty and responsibility to act. But this requires abandoning our all-too-popular, comfortable Christianity and embracing a comprehensive Christianity that gets off the bench, gets your boots on the battlefield, to fight on behalf of those who cannot, to speak on behalf of those who cannot. Proverbs 31.8, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The preborn, literally, cannot speak for themselves. But we also cannot speak for ourselves. Apart from Christ's sacrifice on the cross, 
his resurrection and his offer of free salvation, we are also those who cannot speak for ourselves. Who can stand before God on the day of judgment and say, Jesus, <clears throat> perfect record over here, baby. Oh yeah, open up the gates of glory. This is why scripture says that we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. What's an advocate? Someone who speaks up for someone else. Pro-life resistance to the culture of death is simply the correct response of the heart to the gospel. Love is I have loved you. So if Christ spoke up for us when we were utterly incapable of doing so, how can we not speak up for the pre-born children in our midst who are equally unable to speak up for themselves? You see, the gospel is at the very heart of pro-life resistance to the culture of death. So ascend with me, if you will, to the parapets of America, and let's see what we can see, shall we? Let's get an overview of the moral landscape of this country to know what we're fighting against. 48 years ago, the Supreme Court decided that a new class of human beings were not persons, repeating the same bigotry that they did on slavery. When they ripped the term human from person apart and said, it doesn't matter that the unborn is a human, they're not a person, therefore they can be aborted through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Abortion is legal through all nine months. If you think I'm wrong, go to the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, and you can view the percentages of abortions that happen in America in the third trimester. If they aren't happening in the late trimester, why is Guttmacher reporting the percentages that do happen? But then people say, it's such a small percentage, Seth. Not very many third trimester abortions happen. Correct, it's like one and a half percent. But when you kill a million babies a year, small percentages represent very large numbers. 63 million little children, little human beings have been killed in the last 48 years. It's probably a conservative estimate. At the request of their mothers and fathers and at the hands of physicians. Because of our inverted upside-down politics, our country now extends greater protections to animals than to human beings. This is why if you disturb the egg of a bald eagle, you will be fined a quarter of a million dollars and you will be sentenced up to two years in federal prison. But if you kill a baby at any point in the nine months of their prenatal development, you will be celebrated as a great defender of women's equality and rights. At the end of 2020, the state of Colorado voted on two different bills. One was, are we going to ban abortions after 22 weeks in the state of Colorado? You want to know the earliest baby to have been born and survived? 21 weeks and zero days. What's full gestation? 40 weeks. We've almost cut it in half. That baby went home perfectly healthy and flawlessly fine during the summer of COVID. It was born late 2019. So Colorado residents had this question before them. Will we ban abortions after 22 weeks in the state of Colorado? They overwhelmingly said, no, we will not ban birthday abortions. During the same voting cycle, they had the question, will we protect the gray wolf? And will we introduce more wolves into Colorado? And they voted overwhelmingly to protect the gray wolf, fulfilling G.K. Chesterton's prophetic line when he said, wherever there is animal worship, there will be human sacrifice. Former abortionist Bernard Nathanson who helped legalize abortion in the 70s, was performing them in a state that it was legal, New York, before it was legal at the federal level, presided over 75,000 abortions, performed over 5,000 himself, including an abortion on his own preborn daughter, later had a conversion to Christ in the pro-life movement. And he said, fewer women would have abortions if wombs had windows. But you see, Planned Parenthood keeps that window shut at every turn 
to ensure that nobody sees the very real humanity of the child. This is why if you request an ultrasound from Planned Parenthood as a pregnant woman, they will not let you schedule your ultrasound unless you already have your abortion scheduled. I'm not kidding. So in other words, you can't see your baby unless you already have an appointment to kill your baby. Well, let me take you to that window now. Let's open that window together because we have to see what's going on before we know how to respond. Within the first four weeks, the baby's eyes, face, mouth, jaw, throat, and heart will begin to form, and their heart will begin beating by day 21, three weeks. Most women don't know they're pregnant yet, so every abortion kills a human being with a heart that has already began beating. Today, you can kill that baby anywhere in the country. By six to eight weeks, the baby has ears, the beginning of his brain, spinal cord, nervous system, digestive tract, sensory organs, and bone. And in all 50 states, you can kill her. By 16 weeks, the baby has fingers, toes, eyelids, eyebrows, eyelashes, fingernails, hair, teeth, bones, a functioning nervous system, and fully developed genitals. Her heart is pumping roughly 25 quarts of blood every day. She can suck her thumb and yawn. In every state, you can kill her. By 19 weeks, you can feel your baby kicking and moving. And she has what's called all of the thalamic circuitry in place to experience pain to the same degree as you and I. We know the baby responds to some type of stimuli by seven or eight weeks old. Did you know this? But can experience pain to the same degree as you and I by 19 weeks. So when you dismember that child, it is as painful to them as if I tore your limbs off. And when pro-lifers try to pass legislation to require abortionists to give the child painkillers before they're aborted, the abortion industry always files out a lawsuit to say, no, we don't want babies to have painkillers before they're dismembered. This is the culture of death. By 21 weeks, your baby can survive outside the womb in a neonatal unit with the help of heroic doctors. In 33 states, it's absolutely easy to kill her. In the remaining 17 states, it's only slightly more difficult to kill her because the Supreme Court said that third trimester abortions can be allowed in all states if failure to get that late-term abortion endangers the mother's health. And did the courts define the word health? They later had to clarify what they meant by the word health because they left it so open-ended, and they basically said it could, it could pertain to family health, emotional health, psychological health. So basically, whatever the woman wants it to be in order to get a late-term abortion. And guess which physician has to determine whether the mother's definition of health is an appropriate one to give her that late-term abortion? The abortionist who has a financial incentive to accept any definition of health because he receives blood money in return for the murdered child and the most expensive abortions are the ones happening at later terms. This puts us in the company of only seven countries in the world, brothers and sisters, that allows abortion after 20 weeks. Countries like China and North Korea. Well, you have seen with your ears, but I also want to give you the opportunity this morning to see with your eyes. Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, we're not going to expose exactly what an abortion does to a child this morning. However, we will have a link on the website so you can view what these children look like after they're killed. 
And for those who say, that's too graphic, Seth, why would you show us that? My simple question is, why have you never complained about the use of graphic imagery against every social injustice in all of human history, like the Holocaust and slavery, because you believed it was important for the collective culture to view that which they were tolerating? Why won't you support the same thing on abortion? That's what I would ask you. But we're not going to show that this morning, but we are going to show you babies at six, seven, and eight weeks old. The first two months, 90% of abortions are performed in the first trimester the first three months. There's the greatest public support for abortion amongst Americans in the first trimester. We have this, every time we poll the American public, it's like less people support abortion as the baby gets older. It's very strange. I call this ageism, by the way. Oh, so now that the baby's older, you, you don't want to kill it as much? Oh yeah, because it looks a little bit more like you, so you're a little bit more uncomfortable with killing it, huh? 13% of the American public supports abortions in the third trimester. The vast majority of Americans support abortion in the first trimester, but it's still a human being. So we're going to open that window to the womb for you right now to show you what God sees, as he is quite literally, according to scripture, knitting human beings together in their mother's womb. This is what you look like at six, seven, and eight weeks old, and guess what? It's what your Savior looked like in Mary's womb at six, seven, and eight weeks old. Let's open the window to the womb. A touch to the mouth area causes the embryo to reflexively withdraw its head. The external ear is beginning to take shape. By six weeks, blood cell formation is underway in the liver, where lymphocytes are now present. This type of white blood cell is a key part of the developing immune system. The diaphragm, the primary muscle used in breathing, is largely formed by six weeks. portion of the intestine now protrudes temporarily into the umbilical cord. This normal process, called physiologic herniation, makes room for other developing organs in the abdomen. At six weeks, the hand plates develop a subtle flattening. Brain waves have been recorded as early as six weeks and two days. Nipples appear along the sides of the trunk shortly before reaching their final location on the front of the chest. By six and a half weeks, the elbows are distinct. The fingers are beginning to separate and hand movement can be seen. Bone formation, called ossification, begins within the clavicle or collarbone and the bones of the upper and lower jaw. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. My frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together in the dark of the earth, every day ordained for me before one of them came to be. That's what your savior, Christian, looked like in the womb in Mary's body in six, seven, and eight weeks old. 900,000 of those children are killed every year in this country. The other 100,000 happening in the second and third trimester. 
This type of footage is called embryoscopy. It's not ultrasonography. We now can insert a small camera up the birth canal, and because the amniotic sac is clear, you can actually see the child. By the way, did you see that baby's heart beating through their translucent skin? Now, if you hadn't seen the size reference, you probably would have thought that that child was like a foot long, showing you how detailed and beautiful God's handiwork is at the very beginning. This is the window that Planned Parenthood never opens for women. Now, listen, I understand when we show you this imagery, for many of you, this is not just an ideological or philosophical discussion. We're not just talking about ideas. For many of you, we're talking about your story. For many of you, you chose to pay someone to remove that child through an abortion. For some of you, you might have paid for, pressured, or manipulated your girlfriend or wife into that procedure. I don't know your story this morning, but I just want to tell you that I'm not here to shame and condemn you this morning because I'm a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that the prenatal God, the second member of the Trinity, stepped down into time and space that he created in a womb that he created to dwell and develop in that womb dies for mankind's sins, predicts and pulls off his own resurrection so that we can be offered eternal life and glory for those of us who repent. So listen, I believe that Jesus would tell you if he were preaching this sermon that he's just as eager to forgive your sin of abortion as any other sin that anyone could ever commit. Abortion's not a blacklist sin. Okay, abortion is not an unforgivable sin. And if you want evidence of this, if you've been living under shame for years, have told almost no one about what's happened, I just point you to the story of King David, yeah? God called him like a, a man after his own heart, right? Did you know he was also a peeping Tom? <laughs> King David hanging out on his roof. While his army was fighting a battle he should have been leading. Great leader, right? Oh, look, Bathsheba's taking a shower. Wow, David. Well, decides enjoying her visually is just not stimulating enough, so he sleeps with her, impregnates her, and murders her husband. Man after God's own heart? If that doesn't provide hope to you, I don't know what will. But you see, there was more to David's story. The prophet Nathan confronts David regarding his heinous sin. And David kind of justifies it initially, like we all have a tendency to do, and then he repents. He hits his knees, he cries out for the grace and mercy of God, and God renews and forgives David, uses him mightily, calls him a man after God's own heart, and he's in the hall of faith. But maybe like you, and like King David, maybe you arranged the death of an innocent human being in order to hide and cover up your sexual sin. But for whatever reason, you chose an abortion. The end result was the same. It was an image bearer of God who was killed, whose life was snuffed out. But listen, if there was grace for King David, brothers and sisters, there is overwhelming grace for you. David loses his son, his little baby, okay? God actually strikes the child dead. The baby that he created with Bathsheba, an eternal soul who had never existed before and would never exist again. And King David says, my son will not return to me but I will go to him. I will see him in glory. 
So if this is part of your story, I want to tell you that not only is Jesus faithful and just and loving to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and use you mightily and call you a man or woman after God's own heart, but if you accept that gospel of grace, like King David, you're going to see your son or daughter in heaven again one day, and they are seated on the lap of the King of Kings, waiting to welcome you into eternal glory. But that hope is only available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you will not find a salve for your soul or a solution for your sin anywhere else but the womb of Mary where the prenatal God stepped into time and history. So hear that and receive that and know that this is part of your story. The pastors here, myself, and the Choices Pregnancy Resource Center that has post-abortion Bible studies available to you would love to begin a journey of healing with you. We would love to love and welcome you because... We believe that like King David, God wants to take your ashes and make something beautiful out of it and use you to help where you used to hurt because you've been there. And so you can tell the culture, don't do this. Hear that and receive that, please. Know that we are not here to shame and preach hellfire and damnation on you, but rather salvation found in the womb of Mary. But folks, we're killing babies. And this president has become the most pro-abortion president in American history, and it is not close. In fact, Joe Biden and his administration makes Barack Obama look like a pro-choice moderate. And Obama was the most pro-abortion president in American history until his VP stepped into the White House. In the first hundred days, this administration has been a greater advocate of the culture of death than any in American history. They have returned to using your tax dollars to fund abortions overseas. Largely in majority black countries, which I just find so interesting because I've been told the Democratic Party is the party of anti-racism, meaning they would want more black people. It's very strange. I don't know. Anyways, they've increased the tax funding of Planned Parenthood by the millions, restoring the 60 million that President Trump defunded. They are using your tax dollars now to restart um, fetal tissue research. That's where you purchase the limbs of children after they've been aborted, and then you use them to tinker around and develop vaccines. Judicial Watch just exposed the FDA in a 600-page report for purchasing aborted babies between 20 and 24 weeks old, so they could have survived outside the womb in a neonatal unit, after they'd been aborted from advanced bioscience resources in Northern California, and requesting them from that lab with the words, quote, fresh and on ice. Why? Well, to create humanized mice to test biologic drugs and test vaccines. So they scalp children, they take their flesh, and they insert it subcutaneously on mice to grow human hair to test vaccines so we can extend our own lives. You, you will fact check me on all this. Within the last month, scientists have pushed to drop the 14-day limit on growing human beings artificially outside the womb in petri dishes in order to tinker around with gene editing because we want to perfect ourselves and live forever. Those same scientists, some of them, are also announcing that they're creating human monkey hybrids Developing them, killing them, harvesting their organs so that those of us who weren't aborted can just live a little bit longer. The Biden administration through the FDA within the last four to six weeks just removed the FDA's 20-year-long safety regulations on the sale of the abortion pill. It's a, de it's a detailed conversation. Essentially, we had regulations saying if you want the abortion pill, you have to show up for an in-person evaluation to make sure that you didn't have an ectopic pregnancy when the baby implants in the fallopian tube, because then the abortion pill will kill the mother. And secondly, to make sure that the baby is as old as you think it is, because the abortion pill is only taken through 10 weeks, 
And so if you take it past that stage, it leads to incomplete abortions, and you have floating dead baby parts in mother's uterus, making her susceptible to sepsis, infection, and death. Those are why the safety regulations were in place on the sale of the abortion pill. Sounds pretty like common sense, right? Like a pro-choice should support that. Well, the FDA has removed that so that they can participate in what we call mail-order murder or telemedicine abortions. So this means the abortion pill now, you guys, in all 50 states, thanks to the FDA and this administration, can snail mail abortion pills to women's mailboxes and your daughter's college mail slots. So how do we advocate for that child? There's not a sidewalk we can stand outside of and plead with the mother. The, p the poison is showing up in the mailbox. Thanks to Joe Biden, who woke evangelicals told us was the real pro-lifer. They're praying they can pass the Equality Act, which would force pro-life OBGYNs and nurses to perform abortions upon threat of career termination. Because denying a woman an abortion, they are, they are now defining as pregnancy discrimination. It's all in the Equality Act. You'll read it for yourself. It would also force you and Americans in every state to fund abortions through a whole cornucopia of different programs. And it would basically turn over every pro-life law in every state because it would deem it unconstitutional. And here locally, Planned Parenthood is knocking on your door wanting to open up a killing center in order to get closer access to the children, pre-born children and pregnant women of Chattanooga. So that's what we need to see. That's what you need to get woke to. So if our confession is going to stop being merely linguistic, saying we're pro-life, and we move to resistance, to resist the culture of death, to love our neighbors, sometimes that requires getting uncomfortable. So in order to judge with truth what is happening, how to make sense of all this madness I just told you within a Christian worldview, we have to do three things. We have to judge with truth, and that requires knowing what the other side believes, why they're so devoted to abortion, and how they implement their plan for parenthood, to use that organization's euphemism. If we're going to judge with a Christian worldview and make sense of these realities, we must do these three things. What they believe, why they love abortion, and how they implement their plan. But let's start with why. Let's begin with why, as it's popular to say. Have you ever wondered why the left in the abortion industry cares so much about abortion? Like, why they love it so much? Have you seen them work themselves up into frenzies every time pro-life politicians try to pass laws to protect the pre-born? President Trump, a man far from perfect, was the most pro-life president in American history, and boy, did they hate that about him. Every time a Supreme Court vacancy opened up, didn't you watch the left lose their ever-loving minds? And what, what was the reason they said for why this could be the end of America if a conservative gets on the Supreme Court? It was always about abortion. That was the number one thing they'd say when a Supreme Court vacancy opened up, was that now those pro-lifers might overturn abortion. If that doesn't tell you how much they care about abortion, I don't know what will. So we need to discuss why this is. Why does the left care so much about abortion? Because listen, for the secular progressive movement, abortion is not just a woman's issue. It's not just one issue among many. For the secular progressive movement, brothers and sisters, abortion is a sacrament. Now, I know that sounds strange. I'm using religious language, and you're thinking, but they're a pagan worldview. I mean, it's a pagan movement. How could that be a sacrament? I think it's important for you to understand this because there are spiritual principalities, and you need to understand that spiritual battle if we as the sons and daughters of God are going to be equipped to engage on that battlefield. 
The secular progressive, like everyone else who turns from God, is not listening to God, right? That should be pretty self-evident. If you're not a son or daughter of the king, and your heart's not been regenerated, then you're not listening to God, which means you're susceptible to the lies of the enemy. Satan, devil, prince of demons, lord of flies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. There are spiritual principalities. So if you're not in the kingdom of God, then you will be being lied to and your soul will be being preyed upon by demons. So what lie are they hearing? When they participate in the liturgy of abortion and the sacrament of abortion, what lie are they hearing? The lie from Genesis 3, the lie from the garden, the first lie out of the serpent's mouth that's been being said to the culture for thousands of years. And what was it? For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods. That's a fascinating lie. I want to be like a god. I want to live forever. This is the lie that the left has adopted and what drives their liturgy on abortion. Because listen, if we're a god, then we get to decide who lives and who dies, right? And so we can kill babies or create babies to explicitly kill them, tinker around with experiments in order to extend our own lives to pursue that which every God is entitled to, eternal life. You know the Bible says eternity is written on the heart of man, right? Meaning that our souls resonate with the truth of God because we come from God, we've been made by God, and so our souls can't help but acknowledge truth when we see and hear it. That's what it means to say eternity is written on the heart of man. So because eternity is written on the heart of man, the left craves the same thing we crave, which is to defeat death. So the secular progressive movement believes the last enemy to be defeated is death. But they took that from the Christian worldview, folks. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be defeated is death. So what they don't realize, brothers and sisters, is that it already has been. The prenatal God who entered time and history in a womb predicts and pulls off his own resurrection, rises again and says, I've defeated death so you can too. So secular progressivism is not a rival politics. It's not an alternative politics. It is a rival religion whose greatest sacrament is abortion. Here's why. Abortion says, you must die, baby, so I can live. Christ says, I must die so you can live. I've died and I raised from death so you can too. Death has already been defeated. The God-man who entered history in a womb takes the punishment for our sin. This is why abortion is the greatest sacrament of the religion of secular progressivism, because rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, the culture of death demands that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. Because we want to defeat death. We want to pursue what every God's entitled to, and the serpent's telling me that I shall be his gods. So I want to live forever. We do this through embryonic stem cell research, fetal tissue research, prenatal gene editing, and human hybrid organ harvesting. The baby simply becomes a sacrifice for man's pursuit of eternal life. So if your organs are dying, the baby's got some more. Take it from them. We kill babies to obtain their parts to perform experiments so we can produce vaccines and drugs to extend our own lives. We kill babies to steal their stem cells with the hope of using it to cure diseases and extend our own lives. Brothers and sisters, this is nothing new. Pagan cultures and societies have always participated in human sacrifice. Babies, children, and adults. To pagan deities who they believed would give them a blessing in return for the sacrifice of a human. 
You know this? Cultures have always sacrificed humans to the war gods, the sex gods, the crop gods, the weather gods, believing they'd receive a blessing in return to protect or extend their own lives. Today, we sacrifice babies to the pagan idols of money, selfishness, education, and career well-being. But it's still demon worship. Because Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you sacrificed your children to. Hear me, wake up. Satan doesn't care what name you call him. He was happy to go by the name of Moloch in the Old Testament. And today, he's fine if the culture of death calls him the name self. Money, education, family, career well-being, human flourishing, pursuit of happiness. He's happy to go by that name as long as you continue to shove children down his throat. For he is a lion who prowls around looking for those to devour. And Satan has always and forever been behind the killing of babies. Did you know this? He's the dragon in Revelation waiting for Mary to give birth to Christ so he can devour and eat him. He's behind the killing of babies by Herod in Bethlehem and by Pharaoh in Egypt. As long as we continue to shove children down his throat, he will say yes and amen. He is the god of the religion of secular progressivism. And Peter Kreft a Catholic philosopher put it better than I ever could when he said abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body, but with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So Christ says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of the King of Kings. The culture of death says the same words. This is my body and I will do whatever I want with what's inside of my body. Why? Because I shall be as gods, and I get to decide who lives and who dies. If you're going to resist the culture of death, you have to know why the left cares so much about abortion. This lie that we received from woke evangelical pastors leading up to the election, like Tim Keller, that said God doesn't care about your vote. Let me quote him verbatim. You have liberty of conscience to vote however you want. These lies from woke pastors who don't understand that they're not fighting an alternative politics. They're fighting a rival religion. So when pastors say, I don't talk about politics, I say, can you preach against false religion? Because that's exactly what we're facing, brothers and sisters. But what do they believe? You know why they care. What do they believe? What is the worldview and religious suppositions of the religion of secular progressivism? There's one belief, ready? There is one tenant and belief of secular progressivism that animates everything that they do. Everything they do trickles down from this one religious belief, and it's called body-self-dualism, or Gnostic dualism. It sounds, I know, sort of strange, but it's body-self-dualism. So there's a duality between the body and the self. Does that make sense? Body, self, dualism. By the way, did you know that Gnostic dualism has been declared a heresy by the church? Oh, it's almost like it's a spiritual battle. Like it's an alternative religion. Yes. Here's what body, self, dualism says. And if you grasp it, your eyes will be opened up to the entire religion of the left. You'll see how it affects everything they do. Ready? They say that there's a difference between the human body and you, the person. So in other words, not all humans are persons. Oh, wait, but didn't that what Nazis said about Jews and racists said about blacks, that even though they were humans, they weren't persons, and so they didn't get personhood rights? Yes, history repeats itself. 
But here's what they believe. They say that the real you is not your body. The real you is your thoughts, your aims, your desires, your motivations, your consciousness, your self-awareness, the relationships you have with others, your ability to interact with your environment. In short, the real you are your functions. How you function, not who you are. Because human beings begin at the moment of conception. So what happens, friends, when being human is not enough to ground your rights? Because what's the only thing we have in common? Look at one another. If you're sitting with a, you know, a girl you've been wanting to ask out, here's your chance. You know, look at one another. What do you have in common? Do we have gender in common? Age? Ethnicity? IQ? Athleticism? Artistic ability? Do we have any of these things in common? No. What's the one thing we have in common? We're human beings. We have a human nature. When did we get a human nature? Uh, when we became human. And when did we become human? The science says the moment of conception. The human nature is the only thing we have in common. So what happens when the left says, being human is not enough to have rights? Because the real you is not your body. That's what they believe. So they believe that your body is just a shell for the real you. The real you is your soul, your self-awareness, your cognitive abilities. So then, the left gets to determine which functional capacities and cognitive abilities you must currently possess to meet the litmus test of personhood. And this is what racists did to blacks. What was the argument of racists in the 1850s? There were two. Wrong skin color, not smart enough. They had the wrong skin color, and they weren't as smart as whites. They weren't as intellectually smart. That was it. So those are accidental properties, right? Because we don't all have the same IQ. In fact, if we held all of our palms up here today, would we all have the same shade of skin color? No, skin color comes in varying degrees, just like intellect comes in varying degrees. So what happens, friends, when you ground rights in things that come in varying degrees? it follows that rights, therefore, come in varying degrees. So whoever has a greater self-awareness has greater rights. Higher IQ has greater rights. Paler skin has greater rights. But if you're an unborn human being and you don't have these cognitive abilities yet, you're not a person. By the way, anytime someone tells you the unborn is a human but not a person, after you scratch your head and do this, I want you to ask them two questions. What's the difference between a human and a person? And then ask them, have you ever met a human that's not a person? Like, like do you have a picture on your iPhone? Like a like human non-persons album. Like, the, do you, like, what do they look like? Well, unfortunately and tragically, friends, that pro-choicer would probably take you in a time machine with Marty McFly back to 1850s America. Oh, yeah. Not the first time a government has said that even though a certain class of individuals are humans, they're not persons. So our Supreme Court in 1973 repeated the bigotry of slavery by ripping the term human and person apart. So the unborn child, who we knew was a human, was deemed a non-person with no dignity, no rights that we were required to respect and protect. So human equality is destroyed. Body self-dualism is the religious belief of the religion of secular progressivism. And this is also what animates their support of transgenderism, by the way. Do you see it? 
The real you is not your body or your genitalia that you were born with. So if you feel like you're a girl inside, but you were born a boy, then you're not a boy because the real you is not the body. It's who you feel you are inside. It's almost like it's a religious perspective that informs everything they do, and then they trickle down their beliefs into the political square to advocate for their beliefs while we sit in our churches and think that our liturgy is just songs. This is also called the performance view of persons. It says your value does not come from your human nature. It comes from how you perform. And we as the high priests of secular progressivism will determine what functions or cognitive abilities you must meet in order to meet the litmus test of personhood. So they say the unborn child is a human, but they're not self-aware, they're not conscious, they don't have any desires, they can't feel pain, and they're not viable. Have you ever heard those terms before? So the unborn, eh, you can kill them. Yes, unborn children are not self-aware, neither are infants who don't realize self-awareness until months after birth. Can we kill them? Correct, the unborn child is not conscious. Neither are our elderly citizens when they're in a coma. Can we kill them? Yes, the unborn child has no desires. They're not aware of their own existence, so they don't have a desire to go on living. Neither do people who have suicidal tendencies and have no desire to go on living. Can we kill them? Did you know Buddhists try to reach nirvana? What's nirvana? Getting rid of all desires. So if a Buddhist reaches nirvana and has no desires, like the child in the womb, can we kill him? And the pro-choicer goes, oh, I don't like my ideas applied outside of the womb. Then maybe you should abandon your prenatal bigotry. Oh, but the unborn child can't feel pain. Neither can born people with the condition congenital analgesia, a condition in which you cannot feel any pain. But the unborn child's not viable. They can't survive outside the wombs because they're dependent on their mothers, uh, and, and so they're, you know, they're not a person. Can we kill born people dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life support, and caretakers? Like the child in the womb, they're dependent on someone or something else without which they cannot continue to live. Who wants to get on board with killing those people? No pro-choicers I know. So they just create these functions and cognitive abilities in order to deny personhood and rights to the class of human beings that they already wanted to deny rights to. Because they don't apply those cognitive abilities for personhood outside of the womb, do they? They only apply them in the womb, so they're only using them to justify killing the unborn because they already wanted to kill the unborn. They're just coming up with a philosophical religious argument to justify their bigotry. The Christian worldview is that you are not valuable because of how you perform, the utility you provide, or your performance or cognitive abilities. You're valuable simply because you're a human being. Not because of what you can do, but because of who you are. An image bearer of God. And if you have grown overly familiar with this concept, the Imago Dei, let me just bring a little bit of sizzle and firepower to what that means and remind you the beauty of this truth. The triune God in perfect unity with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not in need of our fellowship or help. God was just fine by himself. Breeze out the Milky Way, <laughs> drops oceans, laughs animals into existence, and says, it is good. And then says, but it would be a lot better if someone was here to cultivate it and enjoy it. So he makes you in his image and his likeness, more valuable than anything else he has created. You are infinitely more valuable, brother and sister, than any tree or animal, because you bear the image of the creator of the universe. When he looks at you, he says, you look just like me. You bear my image and my likeness. You reflect who I am. 
The divine spark in the soul of God resides in your very soul. This is why you've got the prenatal John the Baptist, remember, doing backflips in the womb when Mary walks into the room, pregnant with God, the fetal God, who is at that moment knitting John the Baptist together in the womb while he's the prenatal God because he's God and God knits life together in the womb. Poof! This is called the incarnation. If it doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. We're not valuable because of what we can or cannot do or what functions we can perform for the high priests of secular progressivism. We're simply valuable because of who we are. But body self-dualism is what they believe. That's their religious precept. Ideas like that have consequences, yeah? And bad ideas like that have a lot of victims namely the pre-born neighbors in our midst. So secular progressivism is a religious movement. They have a sacrament, child sacrifice, in exchange for eternal life. They have a view of the soul that I just told you, this fragmented, fractured, and dualistic view that says the soul is the person, the body is a shell. Your body means nothing. So treat it however you want because it's not the real you. Christ says that that's a heresy because what? He comes with a body and he rises bodily and says that you'll rise bodily too, and he still has the holes in his bodily body to reflect the, part, the truth that we are embodied and sold individuals, both body and soul. Both things matter, reflecting the character of Jesus himself. But friends, they also have a liturgy. Yeah? They have a sacrament, they have a religion, and they have a liturgy. A liturgy is how you work out your religious beliefs. We tend to use that word sometimes as like corporate singing, right, or corporate reading of scripture. We've really watered down what the term liturgy originally meant. So I did some research. Originally, liturgy meant public work, working out in the public square, or service in the name of God. So in the Christian tradition, it means the participation of the people of God in the work of God. Praise God. So while Christians have largely abandoned the liturgy of the public square in seeking to influence the culture and secular government for God's purposes, the left has made public work their primary liturgy. They work out their religious views through public engagement to further secular religion and its goal of remaking all of society in their own image. And they love that the broad majority of the American church's definition of liturgy is just psalm singing and drinking lattes after church. Because that liturgy poses no opposition to the culture of death, does it? It's mere confession and not resistance. So if you're gonna resist the culture of death, you have to know why they love abortion so much, what they believe, and how they implement their plan for parenthood. Their liturgy. Hmm. Well, they're attempting to implement that tried and true liturgy here in Chattanooga as we speak, brothers and sisters. Planned Parenthood has hired two job openings for a community organizer and a sex educator. Now, maybe you think, sex ed, Seth, that's a good thing. You know, if students do have sex, we want them to do it healthy and not get STIs. So that's a good thing, right? Let me graciously suggest you don't know the history of sexual education in this country. Planned Parenthood pushes what is called comprehensive sexuality education. The reason why this is important is because this is what the new Planned Parenthood sex educator who's been hired in Chattanooga is about to start implementing in your city. Let me explain to you why that will have consequences. My friend Monica Klein, who's a former Planned Parenthood sex educator, and now she says that she's doing her penance for the damage that she's done. And she's the president of an organization called It Takes a Family, 
because it should be the family who is the primary discipler and shaper of the next generation, not the high priests of secular progressivism who call themselves the party of science. So she says that Planned Parenthood's comprehensive sexuality education, what is knocking on your door right now, is what grooms children for sexual activity as minors, because it exposes them to everything. It leaves no stone unturned. So it teaches them to dehumanize themselves by treating sex as just for pleasure, and then in turn, it's very easy to dehumanize the pre-born through abortion. So comprehensive sexuality education is just a cycle of dehumanization. Now, if you think I'm crazy, here's a brief history. The roots of the sexual rights revolution that spawned the sex ed movement is all traced back to the debased, fraudulent research of one man, and his name is Dr. Alfred Kinsey. If you don't know who this man is, I'm afraid you should cover your children's ears. In 1947, Alfred Kinsey founded the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. It's still there, by the way. And he conducted research into human sexuality. But he believed that children were sexual from birth, and had sexual rights to sexual pleasure. This is what this pervert believed. Guess what? He wanted to prove it with science. But he didn't follow the science where it leads, an overused term in the last year. He used science to prove that which he already believed was true. So he wasn't following the research where it leads. He wouldn't accept any other proof than what he was already convinced was true, which was that children are sexual from birth. So, the false philosophies on human sexuality that were developed based on his research provided the foundation and rationale behind today's comprehensive sex ed programs all across the country that teach children that they have a right to sexual knowledge and sexual pleasure. And his research provided what became the moral foundation to liberalize laws restricting sexual behavior. It's been used to reduce punishments for sex offenders, and it's been used to celebrate and normalize masturbation, premarital sex, and homosexuality, all as healthy, normal, and part of human flourishing. Most disturbing of all, his findings were also based on the sexual abuse and rape of children by pedophiles. Not because I say so, brothers and sisters, but because he published it in his book called Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. If you purchase this book to learn more, keep it on a high shelf in your house, please. Keep it away from your children. In table 34 of his book, he documents a number of infants, toddlers, and children who were sexually abused by pedophiles for 24 hours to induce orgasms that were timed with a stopwatch. It's in his freaking book. In 1964, Dr. Mary Calderon, who was the former medical director for, do you want to guess the organization? Planned Parenthood, took seed money from Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine, to found an organization called SECUS. It stands for Sexuality, Information, and Education Council of the United States. And Dr. Mary Calderon was a very passionate Alfred Kinsey enthusiast. She believed everything that he taught. Does it disturb you that the organization that kills babies believes that children are sexual from birth and produces sexual education to get in front of minors? Guess what SECUS does today? They're the number one group at the helm of creating and promoting comprehensive sexuality education here and abroad. 
And Dr. Mary Calderon believed that sex education in the 60s was too repressive. It was too conservative because it overemphasized not getting pregnant out of marriage. And it overemphasized not getting STIs. And she believed that proper sex education would teach children that they are sexual beings and that the expression of their sexuality is positive, natural, normal, and healthy at all ages. Dr. Mary Calderon had this to say. She said, professionals who study children have affirmed the strong sexuality of the newborn. Oh yes, the professional class, the medical class, the high priests of secular progressivism who use their own religion and science to justify their bigotry. It's almost like it's been happening for decades. She also said, children are sexual and think sexual thoughts and do sexual things. So like Alfred Kinsey, she was a pervert and founded an organization to sexualize minor while they're young so that they have more unplanned pregnancies so that there's a greater sample size of pre-born human beings who become prospects for abortion. One of the founding board members of SICUS was a man by the name of Wardell Pomeroy. And guess what he used to lead? The Kinsey Institute. He was a former director of the Kinsey Institute and a founding board member of SICUS, which was started by a Kinsey enthusiast with, with seed money from one of the greatest commodifiers and dehumanizers of the last 100 years, Hugh Hefner. Here's what he had to say to Time Magazine in a 1980 interview. He said, it is time to admit that incest need not be a perversion or a symptom of mental illness. Incest between children and adults can sometimes be beneficial. These were the high priests of secular liberalism who were promoting their liturgy in the public square with their ideas. And here we are decades later with the consequences of that. Today, Planned Parenthood, that's knocking on your door, believes what Alfred Kinsey taught that children are sexual from birth and have sexual rights to sexual pleasure. They're trying to equate sexual rights with human rights. So question, brothers and sisters, if sexual rights are human rights and human rights are natural rights, then who's the oppressor who's trying to impede on the natural rights of individuals? You, the parents. This is why a common phrase within Planned Parenthood sexual education circles is this. Parents are a barrier to service. Not because I say so, but because my friend Monica Klein, a former Planned Parenthood sex educator, says that while she was working at Planned Parenthood, this line, parents are a barrier to service, was thrown around all the time. And that everyone there is an avid supporter and admirer of Alfred Kinsey. What's the service? Abortion! Why are you a barrier, parents? Because you, they know you would never teach this garbage to your children. That's why. But they're not after you. They're after your children. We don't have time to dive into the content in these curriculum. But know this. If your child was playing at your neighbor's home and you walked in and they were showing him the curriculum that Planned Parenthood uses, you'd probably knock him out cold and call the authorities to report him as a sex offender it leaves no stone unturned because if children have sexual rights, then they also deserve to know and have knowledge about all sex so they can exercise their rights. This is what the religion of secular progressivism believes. And Planned Parenthood and SICUS have consultative statuses at the United Nations. And they use that status to promote comprehensive sexuality education overseas. And what they often do is they approach these impoverished countries and they say, listen, we'll give you a bunch of money to help your impoverished country, but the prerequisite for those funds is you have to let us run your sexual education programs. Why do they do this? They want another sexual revolution. 
And the best way to do that is to sexualize people while they're young, innocent, and ignorant to what is happening to them. Sparking a sexual revolution would further erode marriage, the nuclear family, and the social fabric of America. It would lead to huge, skyrocketed rates of unwanted pregnancies, which are eternal souls who dwell in the womb of, women's, of women, and so they become prospects for abortion. Hear me very clearly, friends. Sexuality education is their sales funnel. Abortion is their product, and your daughters are their prospects. And they're here now in Chattanooga. You know, Planned Parenthood said, no, 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 no. We're not trying to open up another clinic in Chattanooga. Right, because they don't want you to put your liturgy into the public square. Sex ed is the mold that will turn into black mold, which will be a killing center here in Chattanooga. The only thing standing in their way? You. But they're not after you. They're after your children, those who cannot speak for or defend themselves, who are too innocent to understand what is happening to them. So we need to become like Ezekiel and be a watchman for our times and our cities. God tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33 that not only is he to be a prophet, he's to be a watchman for the city. And here's what God explains what that means. But if the watchman sees the sword coming on the land and does not blow the trumpet so the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But the blood I will require at the watchman's hand. If we don't blow the trumpet when we see the swords of the enemy approaching and others suffer or are killed because they weren't warned, God will hold us accountable, brothers and sisters. Well, the swords of Planned Parenthood are poison pills, suction vacuum machines, and forceps, and their language is out of their fathers, lies. The enemy is at your gates, friends. Their weapons are sharpened, their troops are well-trained, and their greatest hope, their dream, what would make their day is for you to keep your liturgy only focused on singing songs while they build the walls, they build the city to convert the children of the city to the religion of secular progressivism. Friends, I think it's time to blow the trumpet. Here's how you do that. Tell everyone you know to watch this message, and we have a link to the history of comprehensive sexuality education online. Secondly, get equipped to defend life, because I know I firehosed you this morning, and you're thinking, I won't remember half of this. So subscribe to my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber, because we're all unaborted. And as Reagan said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. So every pro-choicer is very grateful that their mother wasn't exercising her right to choose. Listen to this podcast for a few months, and guess what? I guarantee you, you'll be a pro-life ninja flipping around, demolishing pro-abortion bigotry wherever you find it. Thirdly, run for school board, and this church will gladly help you. Keep this trash out of Chattanooga schools, yeah? Oh, wait, you mean Christians getting involved in politics to wield political power? Isn't that idolatry? No, it's being a steward. And who better to wield political power than the sons and daughters of God who understand that they're going to give an account to the king of kings for how they use that power? And fourthly, repeal the obscenity exemption in Tennessee. We have laws against obscenity, right? Do you know this? They're rarely enforced. It's illegal to show children obscene pornographic material. But 44 states have what's called an obscenity exemption. And guess who's under our obscenity exemptions? All of the public schools. So as long as it's for educational value, then you can show the obscene material that in any other context would be illegal. But if it's in the classroom and it's deemed scientific, oh gosh, am I tired of that word? Science then it's perfectly okay. So talk to your legislators and demand that they repeal the obscenity exemption. It's time to wake up. 
It's time to get off the bench, get our boots on the ground, and start resisting the culture of death. You see what's happening. You know why it's important and evil. We have a duty to act. But whether we live to see better days or not, brothers and sisters, is completely irrelevant to our duty now. So when you're like, oh, Seth, can we really make a difference? Can we really turn this around? And you feel like we can't? That's not an excuse to not act. Whether we see better days or, or not is irrelevant to our duty now. Or to quote John Quincy Adams, when asked if he'd ever turn slavery around, he said, duty is ours, results are God's. And it is a glorious time to be alive, for the lion of the tribe of Judah is on the move. And he bids us, come, he bids us join the battlefield where we will find strength for our souls and help in time of need because we are just puppets that the Holy Spirit slips his hand into to do mighty works in this land. Why didn't God just end the Holocaust? Why didn't he just end slavery? Why has abortion been here for 48 years? He's God, he could get rid of it. Are you telling me that he waits for his people and the bride of Christ to wake up and move and that he'll work miracles through his bride? Exactly. He is our king, the God-man, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the fetal deity who entered human history in a womb in order to redeem mankind from their sins. And when we stand before God on the day of judgment and we're asked, son and daughter, what did you do to end the genocide of my babies? While a rival religion was ripping them limb from limb and justifying it under the mantle of science, what did you do? And I pray that your answer and mine would be like William Wilberforce's, that great British abolitionist who said, let it not be said of me, Lord, that I was silent when they needed me. The babies need us, friends. They're waiting for us to intervene. The God-man is waiting for his people to wake up, and the world is watching the bride of Christ to see if this will be our finest hour. What kind of witness will we show them? What kind of truth will we communicate to them as sons and daughters of the king? Duty is ours, results are God's. I will see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven, yeah? <laughs> Hey guys, thanks so much for watching that episode. Please share this broadly. I think that this is a message that could change the hearts and minds of many pastors and Christian leaders who don't engage on abortion. They don't preach on it. They don't disciple their people and they don't do anything to end abortion in their communities because they've absorbed this lie that that's a political issue and we're not political. Well, firstly, I don't even know what that means. But secondly, can you preach against false religion? Because this is not an alternative rival politics. It's a rival religion that has a God and it has rituals and they couldn't be more antithetical or opposed to the Christian worldview. Get this in front of the uh, eyes and ears of your pastor, especially if he doesn't engage on this issue. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps us reach more people. Give us five stars. Give it, leave us a review. Uh, share this episode with someone. Go subscribe at YouTube if you want to watch this show visually and be able to watch this message um, on this screen. And if you want to become a patron of the show, which allows us to create more content, more diverse content, increase the production value of our show, bring on guests and begin creating conversational content on the streets. Become a patron of the show, patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Check out our really cool perks and tears as a small thank you for supporting the show. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Oh, <laughs>